Father, would you teach us now uh, as we begin to think about this season that we enter into this morning? We, uh, we are delighted to be able to, to study and, and to do that, Lord, without hindrance. And we're delighted, Lord, to be able to gather with others who love you and even in, in a little bit come to you at this table that Jesus hosts where we feed upon Jesus. And as we prepare ourselves to do that, God, would you please speak to us? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're launching into a new series today, and it's a series that's obviously going to be celebrating the good news, the good news about Jesus. Um, you know, we're kind of uh, weird uh, in the sense that, uh, as human beings, in the sense that we love to tell people about good news when good things happen to us. Uh, we all enjoy this. We get excited about something, something good comes our way, and we typically spread the word. We've all experienced this. Um, maybe you experienced it when you were uh, getting your first car. I remember when I was just 16, this is going all the way back to 1970, I got a 1963 Plymouth Valiant. That was my first automobile. There it is, my first automobile. Uh, it didn't have power anything. It had a slant six engine and it's the easiest engine to work on, I think, ever built. Uh, even I could do my own mechanical work. Um, it, it had a push button transmission. This was so cool. There it is, right next to the steering wheel. A push button transmission, had no air conditioning, had to roll down the windows for air conditioning. But I was so excited about this car, my first car, because it was a chick magnet. <laughs> That's what the salesperson told me. You know, you buy this car, this is a chick magnet. And oh, was it. But uh, that was my good news, you know, when I was 16 years old, getting to spend some money and buy this very first automobile I ever owned. Sometimes good news just kind of happens to you, right? Uh, I remember one time I was trying to get into college and my grades were pretty poor. I hadn't taken high school very seriously all the way up through my junior year but now I wanted to go to college. And uh, so I put out letters, you know, uh, applications, and, and I kept getting back these uh, letters of rejection. And then one day I got a letter from Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. It was a Christian liberal arts college there in Northern Indiana. And they had accepted me. I was on academic probation. So they wanted me to take a year and prove that I could do this. And uh, that's what I had to do. But it was really good news to me. And I remember getting the reception letter and, and uh, calling some friends and calling some family members just right out of the gate. Guess what? I'm going to college. It was such great news. Um, maybe you've experienced the good news of having a baby. If you've ever had a baby, that's, that's really good news. Um, when uh, we had our first child, I think Holly was in labor for about 33, 36 hours, something like that. It was pretty horrible. And uh, they had to use forceps to get uh, Ian, our oldest, uh, kind of out of the womb. And he was kind of a conehead because of that. But I thought he was the cutest conehead ever. And I uh, could not wait to get pictures. Back then in that era, you actually had something called a camera. It was not your phone. And, uh, and you, would, you, know, you would carry this thing around. It was fairly large in that day just to get video and, and, uh, and pictures and things of that nature. And boy, I sent those pictures off. I couldn't have been more proud or more happy at that good news. Sometimes good news comes to us in real small packages. No big deal, nothing big. Uh, it could be something that just makes us laugh right? Uh, at least a couple times a week, I get some kind of video. One of you will share a video with me and you'll say, man, you got to watch this. This is hilarious, whatever. Here's one I got some time ago. Take a look. 
isn't that great? Whoa! Can I touch him? No! You know? <laughs> uh, that's very cute. Uh, when we see something like that, we oftentimes just love to share it. We have an expression. In fact, we'll talk about things on the internet going viral, uh, meaning it's infectious. It's spread absolutely everywhere. You can't stop it. And really, we are that way. When we get excited about something, uh, just about anything, we talk about it. We tell other people. Uh, we are spread the word kinds of people. And uh, we're just good news tellers. It's built into us. And with that in mind, I want to show you a statement from the Christmas story. This is from the Gospel of Luke, and it's about the shepherds. Uh, this unfolds, this story unfolds in Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 17, it says, When they had seen him, Jesus, they spread the word. You know, moments ago, right before this, they were just shepherds on a hill. They were watching sheep. But now they have a message. Now they have a mission, and they have become, because of that mission, something other than just shepherds. They've actually become life changers. Uh, they went from shepherds to being life changers because of the good news that they had to share. And I want to talk to everybody who's part of this church as we look forward to our Christmas Eve celebration about spreading the word about Jesus and about being life changers and uh, why that matters so much and how God invites us to be a part of his mission. And that means if we are we become life changers. But I want to first dive into the story here in Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. Luke is deliberately painting here a picture of contrast. That's what he's doing in this passage. It's a contrast between the real good news and what's not. The story begins with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree and uh, everybody has to register, go to their hometown. Now understand, this registration is not something random. It's about taxation. That's why they're registering. They are registering in order to be taxed. And it's a pretty awesome thing when you think about it, that one individual can issue a decree, one guy, and he is able to make everybody get up and perhaps leave their home like Joseph had to do and go to their hometown and register in order to pay a tax. And by the way, all of these taxes, they belong to Caesar. He can do with them, frankly, just about anything he wants. Uh, why? Because Caesar was the guy who had the power. He was the guy, he believed, who was the good news for all the world at that time. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is from an ancient inscription. I have this from an ancient inscription. It says, Caesar Augustus is savior of the world. That's the way Caesar is being described. And that language, savior of the world, is loaded language because Caesar claimed that language for himself. That was his title. Uh, in fact, the word gospel, the word uh, good news is a Greek word, euangelion. And it's actually a technical phrase used in the first century, this time that we're talking about, to describe the beginning of the reign of Caesar Augustus. And uh, the assumption was that it was good news for the human race that Caesar was now in charge. Caesar was in control. Caesar was on the throne. Uh, this is another ancient inscription from the first century. Uh, 
The birthday of the god, Augustus, uh, and that's because he claimed to be divine. The birthday of the god, Augustus, has marked the beginning of the good news of the world. That's loaded language there. And that's kind of an odd thing to us to read and to think about. But the birthday of Caesar was regarded as the beginning of the gospel of the good news. Does anybody know when Caesar Augustus's birthday was? Interesting. I had to look it up too. September 23rd. Uh, you've already missed it. Uh, Hallmark does not sell a whole lot of birthday cards for Caesar Augustus' birthday. Uh, but there is another birthday from this same period of time that is still being celebrated, and it's going really, really strong. Uh, and Hallmark does make a bundle of money off of this birthday. Whose birthday am I talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would that come as a big surprise to Caesar? Oh, you bet it would. Caesar had the money. Caesar had all the clout. Caesar had all the power. He believed that his reign was good news for the world. And he was bringing peace to the world, the Roman peace, Pax Romana. He was bringing prosperity to the world. Any reader in the ancient world of that story, those verses that we read in the Gospel of Luke, would have thought to themselves, Caesar is indeed the good news. But Luke tells us that the strangest thing happens. Caesar makes this decree that all the world ought to be registered and all the world is to be taxed. And so a guy that Caesar has never met named Joseph gets up with his wife, Mary, and goes to his hometown. And by the way, his hometown happens to be the place where, according to ancient Jewish prophecies, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the savior of the world would be born. And immediately for anybody reading this story and giving it any serious thought, the question would arise, who is really in charge? I mean, who's really making the decisions here? Who's really the good news? And the story of Christmas is a story about good news. It's also a story about Joseph going home. Let's think about that for a second. Christmas was and in a way always has been about going home. We don't know much about Joseph's home. We don't know if he had been there any time recently. Uh, we don't know if he still had property there or anything of that nature. We don't know if he still had family members living in Bethlehem. It appears that maybe he didn't. Uh, but again, we do know, as I just said, that this town was the town of Bethlehem. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. It's fascinating that uh, there would be someone born in this town who the Jews considered to be, at least some of the Jews, to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. And when he became a man, he would say these words, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. Well, where did you come from? Well, I came from the house of bread. I was born in the house of bread as it was prophesied. It's interesting, when I think about Christmas, I wonder if you're the same. I think about my family celebrations and growing up, bread had a role in it. I remember my mom used to bake bread. And that smell of bread permeating the house, man, that was a, in our house a Christmas smell because she didn't often do that. Sometimes she'd bake cookies, sometimes it'd be cake. We would always do things like decorate the outside of our house. How many here are truly Christians and decorate the outside of their house? 
Sometimes my parents would let us kids uh, have a tree of our own in the basement, and we would get to decorate that. And uh, we would do it for safety reasons out of popcorn, stringing popcorn. Ever done that? Uh, and we would sometimes make paper ornaments for the tree. Yes, and I walked to school 20 miles in the snow barefoot and all that, you know, whatever. Uh, when I think about Christmas, I think about that home, though, where I grew up for some reason. That's the one that comes to mind. And then Christmas Day would come around and we would all get up, we would open our presents, and then we would get in the car and we would drive to my grandfather and grandmother's house. This is the uh, mother and father of my mom who lived in central Indiana on a farm, big old farmhouse. And my mom had uh, six siblings, Earl and Delmer and Paul and Hack and Glenn and Judy. And they were all married and they all had kids and they would all come together in what to me felt like at that time a huge farmhouse. And when I went back there as an adult later, I saw it and I said, oh, this wasn't really that big, you know, but it felt to me at the time like a huge, huge farmhouse. It was heated with coal. Used to love to go down in the cellar with my grandfather and watch him shovel coal into the furnace to heat that house. And uh, we would feast, oh man, turkey and dumplings. Grandma always had dumplings, green beans, dressing, pies of all kind, all cooked in copious amounts of lard and bacon, <laughs> bacon grease. I mean, you know, grandma didn't care very much how long people lived, but she wanted the food to have a really great taste. And man, it did have a great taste. And we kids would eat and then we would be dismissed and we would go off at this house Again, my recollection as a child, it had a, one of those attics, kind of like the wardrobe of C.S. Lewis. You'd walk into it and there was a whole world in there, right? We'd play around in the attic or if the weather permitted, we'd go out and get in one of the barns or a hayloft and things of that nature and just play all afternoon. And we had Christmas in that house every year for, gosh, at least 15 years, my first 15 years. And that house is still there. And when I think of Christmas, I think about home. And I think about gatherings. And I can still remember my mom, too, talking about a song in particular. So as long as I can actually remember as a child, I remember hearing this song around Christmas time. Uh, you know, Earl and Delmer and Hack and Paul and Glenn all fought in World War II. All of them, all the brothers. And uh, some were in Europe and some were in the Pacific. I can remember my mom telling the story about when her brothers left for w the war. And my grandmother just couldn't stand it because obviously her whole family was gone. They were, they were overseas somewhere fighting a war. And they were just pins on a map for several years. But there was this song, a real popular song back then. Most of you know it. Uh, it, it came out in 1943. Bing Crosby sang it. And what is it? I'll be home for Christmas, yeah. And that song always used to cause my mom to choke up. Um, and it's kind of an odd thing. In our home, in the home of my grandparents, there was great joy. There really was. There was great joy. And I loved going to those homes when I was growing up, but there was also a lot of pain. In every one of those homes, there was a lot of pain. Mostly I didn't know about that as a little child. But as I got older, I came to understand, oh yeah, there was a lot of brokenness there. And it's such a poignant phrase in this song, I'll be home for Christmas. It means so many different things. It may fill you with a lot of nostalgia, it may fill you with a lot of gratitude, or it may fill you with a lot of pain. Your home may just be a, a Looney Tune factory. You know, 
And it's painful to even think about going back. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. Next week, the sermon title is Help. I'm going home for the holidays. So, <laughs> Yeah, you, we all relate to this, you know. And if you're the one hosting, just think what they're thinking coming to your house. It's the same thing. Help. I'm going, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. We all really do have a longing right here for home. And we have this sense that we want the next generation for their homes to be even better than our home is or was. Holly and I first purchased a thing called a home in Boca Raton, Florida. Paid $140,000 for this house. Had a kidney-shaped pool. It had palm trees in the front yard and the back. I mean, we thought we had arrived. And we got to start, you know, having a home and decorating a home and starting a family there in that place. Uh, when we sold that home, we moved here in 1987, uh, and we bought a home in Kincaid Ranch, $150,000, and we raised our kids there. We were there for 23 years, lots and lots and lots of memories in that home. And really, frankly, I think everybody hopes for a home. And now our kids are all making homes for themselves. It's a funny thing about home. Um, home can create more joy than anything else. And home can be associated with more pain than just about anything else. Home, uh, turns out, is actually a hard word to define. <laughs> you can get a lot of different definitions, but it's a hard word to define. It's obviously not just where you live. Just because you place your body into a box that you live in, you wouldn't necessarily call that home. But I think there's probably three things that rise up or well up inside of us when we think about home and one would be that home is a place to belong. I belong here. I'm welcome here. I'm in the right place. Home, I think, is also a place where you're safe. That's a part of our concept of home. And home is a place where love is supposed to prevail. But interestingly, we live in a world... Uh, that isn't safe. We live in a world where often we feel excluded. We live in a world where love often doesn't prevail. And yet we still have this longing for home. Turns out that our longing for home and our homesickness is something that, frankly, if you really sit and think about it, this world simply cannot satisfy these deep-seated longings. And yet you and I and everybody were made to go home we were made to experience this, this deep sense of home, this place where we belong and where we're safe and this place where love prevails. And Jesus even talked about this. He said one time, talking to his followers, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, that's, that means I'm, I'm going to have a home for you. You're not going to be homeless. I'm not going to leave you as, as orphans. I will come to you, he says. And then a little later on, he says to them, if anyone loves me, and he says, he will obey my teaching and my father will love him and make our home, what an interesting thing to say, make our home with him. You see, you were meant to be the place God calls home. God wants for you to be home in him. And God wants to be home in you. I mean, this is quite remarkable, really. And this invitation stands for the whole human race. Jesus put it like this one time. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
And he would tell stories about the human race being invited to come home. He was the best at this. One time he told a story. We call it the prodigal son. This is about a young man who made terrible, 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 terrible choices. Uh, Maybe you've done that. Truth be told, we've all done that. Well, this prodigal son deeply wounds his father because he essentially says to his dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I wish you were dead and out of the way. And then he takes his inheritance, goes to a foreign country, wastes it, spends it quickly, wakes up one day in enormous, just enormous pain. And he says to himself, man, I have to go home. Now, he didn't know if he'd be welcome there. But he thought to himself, man, going home will still be better than here. What he doesn't know is that his father has never stopped loving him. Not for a moment. His father never stopped wanting him to come home. His father has longed for his return ever since the day he left. That hasn't changed. And what Jesus was saying was, you know, the heart of this father that I'm describing is the heart of God for you. And so whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, Jesus would say to you, just come home. Come home. God the Father wants you to come home. And that's the invitation for all of us, every one of us. And if you know Jesus already and you have made your home in God through Jesus, then friends, you have a mission. And the mission is to tell people that there is a God like this, a God who is unbelievably good and gracious and forgiving. Your mission is to spread the good news that Jesus, the Savior, is born. And anyone who wants to can come home. Anyone who wants to could come be with God. Now, I know when I start talking about that kind of stuff, this mission, what our calling is, some people feel like, well, yeah, but, you know, I don't know how to do that. There's no way I'm going to do that. I haven't been trained to do that. I feel inadequate to do that. I'm not capable of arguing uh, adequately for the truth of the gospel and so on and so on. I just don't feel adequate. Well, that's why we're talking this morning about the shepherds. The shepherds, think about this, they were the first individuals to bear witness about the Savior being born. First guys to spread the word. You know, in our days, we have these kind of sentimental thoughts about shepherds. We think of them as gentle, humble guys out there just loving on the sheep who uh, everybody wants to be around. Hey, how did shepherding go today? But the fact of the matter is, in Jesus' day, shepherds were not regarded this way. You may have heard this before. In Jesus' day, they were actually looked down upon. Their occupation was despicable. In fact, in Israel, there were certain occupations that were unacceptable, mostly because of the people who plied them. Uh, rabbis taught mothers that there were certain occupations you did not want your children going up to do. Uh, One of them was gambling with dice. Don't be a gambler. Another one was being a money lender. Don't let your children become money lenders. Another one was being a tax collector. Another one was a pigeon trainer. 
And pigeon trainers because they use pigeons for gambling. That's why. Don't let your kids grow up to be pigeon trainers. Another one was Sabbath violating farmers because farmers have to go out and feed their livestock, their cattle, and tend to things every day, seven days a week. That means they're breaking the Sabbath. Don't let your kids do that. And then the other one on the list is shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds were looked down upon. They were assumed to be dishonest. They had a reputation for stealing and eating lambs that did not belong to them. And they would graze their sheep on other people's grass, taking advantage of people. It was assumed that shepherds would sometimes purloin the sheep and the flock for their own benefit. Shepherds were considered dishonest, thieving, disreputable people. In our day, there will be certain other occupations that people tell jokes about. What's one of those occupations? Lawyers. Wow, lawyers. Politicians, right? Politicians. What's the other one? It's ministers. Yeah. Yeah. We're all in the same group there. In the ancient world, this is from a Jewish writing called the Midrash. This is what it says. I'm going to quote it. There is not a more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. (coughs) Excuse me. Shepherds were so looked down upon that they were not allowed to bear witness in a court of law. So literally, if you were accused of a crime and your only alibi was that you had been playing poker with three other shepherds, you were hosed. They couldn't bear witness in a court of law. And yet it's shepherds, and I just scratched my head on this, but it's shepherds that God chose to be the first ones to bear witness to the birth of his son, Jesus. Shepherds. Why? Was God not able or capable of getting better witnesses? Surely he was. I'll take a stab at why. I you know, can't know for sure that this is the only reason. But I think one of the reasons is that if the shepherds could be witnesses for Jesus, then anybody could be witnesses for Jesus. Even you and me, you see. Because our telling the story of Jesus to others, that's what being a witness is, by the way. It's only talking about what you know. You don't have to be worried about what you don't know. But our telling the story of Jesus to others is not about our credibility. It's not about how articulate we are. It's not about how uh, intellectual we might be able to be. It's about the person of Jesus, just saying what we know to be true. It's about spreading the news. Hey, you know, I've, I've just got to tell you some good news. A savior has been born. And we do this all the time, as I was hinting earlier or saying earlier, about the goofiest things. We do it for videos of animals. Man, check out the internet. We do it for kids doing silly things like what I showed you. Uh, We do it for food that we've tasted. You got to check out this restaurant. Went here, had this. Awesome, right? We do it about cars. We do it about sports. Why wouldn't we do it about what matters or should matter most? One night when the shepherds were in the field uh, and an angel appears to them, the shepherds are overwhelmed. It says they are filled, filled with fear and joy. Wow, an angel. Can I touch it? Oh, no. You know, <laughs> that's what's going on. That's exactly how they felt. Wow. Ooh, wow. Can I touch? Oh, no. You know, <laughs> and the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. And that's that word, euangelion. The word is gospel. You see, it's not just good news for some folks. 
It's not about money. It's not about power. It's, it's not about Caesar. That's for sure. In Luke 2, we read this. It says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Even you shepherds, you who are listening to me right now, he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. It's not Caesar. Caesar's name is great, but he's no savior. That's the point. That's why Luke began chapter two the way he began it. I was thinking about people of power that we revere and that we respect today. Uh, people like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. I mean, did these guys have power? Man, you bet they have power, unbelievable power. They employ tens of thousands of people, families whose lives they affect. They say something and that changes the market just because of what they say, but they're not Jesus. They can't save anybody. Here's a person of power. How about Oprah? Yeah, Oprah. Does Oprah have power? Oh my goodness, she makes and breaks careers. Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Gail King. You know, not too long ago, Oprah bought 10% of Weight Watcher stock. It went up 105% the very day she purchased it. Incredible. Oprah has amazing power, but Oprah's not Jesus. Oprah can't save anybody. Here's another amazing name, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, does she have power? Unbelievable power. You date Taylor Swift and break up with her, she will write a song about you and the whole world will know what kind of scumbag you really are. <laughs> Unbelievable power. But she's not Jesus. She can't save anybody. Here's what the book of Acts says. Salvation is found in no one else. Think about that. Think about if that's true. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I'll tell you what the power of Jesus can do. Only Jesus can answer your prayers. Only Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Only Jesus can forgive your sin. Only Jesus was resurrected from the grave and overcame death itself. Only Jesus can give you a purpose. I mean a deep-seated purpose for your life. Only Jesus can give you hope beyond your death. Only Jesus can make his home in your heart. Only Jesus was born in a manger, died on a cross, and was resurrected. And today, 2,000 years later, is still changing lives. Only Jesus does that. Amen. Amen. So when the shepherds heard the angels, they ran off to see baby Jesus. And we read this, it says, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Notice this, again, these are shepherds. They are, there's all kinds of reasons why they should not have gone and spread the word. I mean, they're not educated. Uh, they can't testify in a court of law. They have a despicable job. Nobody likes them. They have no respect whatsoever. But when they spread the word, what we read is this. It says, all who heard it were amazed. And now we get to the real point, you see. It's not about the shepherds. Not about their reputation. Not about what they know or don't know. It's not about what they do or don't do. It's about Jesus. 
And the question for you and me is, do we really think the news about Jesus is all that good? Maybe we take it for granted. I know I do sometimes. Just take it for granted. I forget about its power. I forget about his importance. Maybe we need to think about this. What do I think about Jesus? Is he, is he my God? Is he my Lord? Is he a number one priority in my life? Is he my good news? I would say the best tune-up you could do for Advent season would be to sit there for a while. Make a determination now as we enter into this month whether or not he is your good news. And if he is, start thinking about how to spread it. You know, I'm asking you if you're a part of Deer Creek Church and if you follow Jesus, then please join us in this mission. It's our mission. Help us spread the word. Help us to live as if we were life changers, not because of who we are, what we do, but because of who he is and what he did. This Christmas Eve, uh, if there's any time of the year, I, I don't know why this is, but this is true of North Americans. If there's any time of the year when people are suddenly open to hearing about Jesus and things of that nature, it's, this is one of those times of year. Um, I don't want this Christmas Eve, our gathering, to be just a warm, fuzzy religious experience. And I've begun really intently praying about this. This year, I want Christmas Eve uh, to be a great service. It's going to be a great service. And I'm going to give the clearest telling of the good news that I know how to give. And, uh, and we want people to hear that message and come to know him. And we need to be praying about this. And I'm going to be inviting people to give themselves, surrender their lives to Jesus this Christmas Eve. And I want to give you a little challenge on this. Um, there was a thought that I usually discourage around this preaching thing. Um, that's when people sit in a place like this and they think, oh, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. You know, usually when you're thinking that, I would say to you, that's a wrong thought. So if I'm talking about stubbornness uh, or whatever sin, and you're thinking, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. No, probably it's you that needs to hear this message, okay? So I usually really try to discourage this thought. But uh, for this Christmas Eve, I just don't want anybody thinking, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon. We want to do the very best we can to create a service, a moment in time, a message that is inviting people to know Jesus. And so the invitation for all of us is to be life changers this month here in December. You know, we live in Denver, Colorado, two and a half million people in this metroplex area. The statistic is that only 35% of those are involved in any kind of religious activity. That means anything you know, Buddhism, you know, Islam, Christianity, you name it, anything, 35%. And of course, that's not just a number. We're, we're talking about people here. Everybody is somebody's son. Everybody's somebody's daughter. And we want to be a church that cares about this. We want to pray. We want to reach out. Most of the two and a half million people in our communities have no community of faith. They don't know Jesus. And of course, we know some of these people. They are our coworkers. They are our fellow neighbors in the places where we live. They're our fellow students. And friends, they are people who God wants to reach, I think, through us, some of them. So understand, every human being, the writer of Ecclesiastes makes this point, every human being is made for eternity. 
God has placed eternity in their hearts, we're told in Ecclesiastes 3. And every human being faces the prospect of heaven or the prospect of hell. And I know those words can be talked about sometimes in churches in ways that are real manipulative. I know that. But the fact remains that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man, every woman. And Jesus said, death is not the end. There is eternity. We will all go into eternity. And every human being is going to face death and then eternity of joy with God or of unbelievable pain and heartache from being excluded from the presence of God. And I think we should probably care about that. To not care would be wrong. So here's the thing. Jesus is in the life-changing business, always has been. Anybody here have their life changed by Jesus? Anybody? Good, a couple of us. (laughs) So apparently Jesus is still doing that. You know, he's been doing that for two thousand years and we are so privileged to have some people even uh, in our midst some with whom I've had a few conversations and they're kind of checking out Jesus and checking out Christianity and they feel strangely drawn to him Uh, at the same time that they have some struggles with us that's a lot of times how this works you know Christians are hard to love Jesus not so much if you get to know Jesus but you know And it's just God working in their lives, drawing them, calling them, inviting them to come home. That's Jesus knocking on the door of their life. Folks, aren't you glad to be a part of the church where, a part of a a church where that is happening, where God is working in that manner and people are wrestling with and hopefully will come home to Jesus? I am. Now, here's the deal. I don't know what you do for a living. Don't know if you're retired or if you volunteer somewhere or if you're way high up on the corporate ladder or way down low. Maybe you're herding sheep somewhere. It doesn't matter. If you follow Jesus, you're called to be a life changer because nobody is so rich or so educated or so beautiful or so healthy or so successful. Nobody has climbed the ladder so high that they don't need Jesus. And Jesus is still changing lives. He puts lives back together. That is just what he does. He infuses them with purpose, with meaning, with forgiveness, with mercy, with grace, with love. This is just what Jesus does. And we get to be a part of that. So I'm asking you to pray about and think about and get on board with this notion of being a life changer this Advent season. I'm asking you to pray, God, would you, would you help me be bold? Would you... Give me wisdom about what to say and how to say it and how to love on people and how to represent you, Jesus, well to them. And where my heart is cold and hard around stuff like this, God, would you soften it? Would you help me when I'm with people to think best about how to represent you? How best to spread the word so that people can come home to Jesus? Um. You know, it's interesting to me that the meal that we have here is a, it's a home meal. It's a a meal that Jesus invites us to participate in and uh, a meal that that says, "I, I want to come into your life and I want you to come into by faith, embrace mine. Um, 
meals happen in homes. Families sit around them and laugh and tell the little ones to be quiet and, you know, stop throwing food and the whole range of things that happen. But a lot of bonding, a lot of relationship, a lot of healthy things can happen at meals. And uh, this is Jesus' meal. This is uh, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples saying, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is also a covenant meal. It's like a wedding feast. Jesus understood that he was making promises to his disciples and he was inviting them into a depth of relationship that is really deeper than any other. It's like a marriage in that sense. And Jesus invites you this morning to the table, to the meal, the family meal. Jesus says, come feast on me. And it's an open invitation. The only thing that is needed to come to this meal is faith. You need to have faith. You need to recognize that Jesus is the savior of the world and not just the world, but yours. Jesus took the the wine and he said this cup is my covenant represents my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins he gave it to the disciples and he said drink all of it what we're going to do is in a moment we'll have four stations up here and you'll get up out of your seat and you'll move to your left and you'll come forward and you'll tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the goblet with the, the bracelet which is wine Uh, or without the bracelet, which is juice. And there's also some gluten-free wafers up here as well uh, for you, which you can just step right to the table and and, uh, be served there. But, you know, if you don't know Jesus this morning, then come home. Put your faith in him. And then come feast on him. If you do know Jesus... Come home, feast on him. He welcomes you. He loves you. He forgives you. As I pray, I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us to come forward. So pray with me. Father, we set these elements apart in this sacrament that Jesus has given us, this bread representing Jesus' broken body, this wine, this juice representing Jesus' shed blood. And we celebrate your goodness and your mercy to us in this new covenant. And we pray, God, you would strengthen our faith, you would forgive us our sin, you would help us to understand our calling to be life changers, proclaimers of the good news we know to be true. And uh, we thank you for the privilege of coming home to your table, Jesus, that you host. We pray these things in your name. Amen.